Welcome to Generation Travel Radio, where we share the stories of people from a diverse range of generations and backgrounds whose lives have been enriched academically, professionally, and personally by international experiences. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Generation Travel Radio. I am one of your co-hosts today, Kelly Davis. It is uh, about 8 a.m. in Pacific time on a Sunday, so I sound groggy. I am a little groggy, but happy to be here. I'm here with my co-host, Erin. Hey, Kelly. Good to be here, too. Morning show. Yeah. Let's do it. (laughs) She's a few hours ahead. Yes, I am. Um, Still kind of groggy. <laughs> and we are meeting on a weekend early in the morning because our guest today is uh, nine hours ahead of me, my good friend, Marton Folstad, who is a good friend for, I don't know, about seven, almost 10 years, somewhere along those lines. I can't do the math right now. So Marton has spent the last two and a half years working at COWI, which is a consulting group based in Denmark where he worked as a consultant on Nordic Ventures. Last year, he completed his master's degree in environmental and natural resource economics at the University of Copenhagen. And prior to that, he completed his bachelor's in comparative politics at the University of Bergen in Norway, which allowed him to spend a year of his program at the Sciences Po in Paris, France. He attended an international IB or international baccalaureate school in Norway for four years before moving on to higher education. And previous to that, he lived in Maryland in the United States and has spent a few years early in his youth living in Mozambique. His parents are both scientists, and like his father, Martin, loves to try specialty dishes of any place that he visits. So, Martin, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for the intro, and thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here, virtually. Virtually, yes. Martin and I were realizing a few months ago that this is kind of the longest that we've gone without hanging out with each other is about two years. It's been probably two and a half years now, almost. Tragically. Um, yeah. So, so we're looking forward to the end of the pandemic when we can actually make that happen. <laughs> so Martin, um, as I didn't put this in the background, he is half Norwegian, half American. So I'm first going to have him tell us the basics about him. Martin, where are you from? Who are you? on a day-to-day basis, and what is your personal mission? Well, uh, I appreciate the, the introduction that covered uh, a lot of my education and professional direction. I'm born in Annapolis, Maryland in 1994. So that's the uh, Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, which includes uh, Baltimore as well. Quite a few millions of people living there, but uh, Annapolis is a pretty quiet, sleepy place, uh, harbor town. Uh, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the uh, United States, known for its historical buildings and uh, seafood, sailing, and crabs. I uh, spent about 11 years in Annapolis growing up. Two years after my birth, my family moved me to Mozambique, as you mentioned, where we lived for three years right after the end of the Mozambican Civil War, uh, which ended in 1993. And the country was uh, in uh, a recovery period while we lived there. Um, My family, both of them are marine scientists, and they uh, both quit their full-time jobs. In the case of my mom, that was a government job. In the case of my dad, that was a, a private sector consulting job and they moved the entire family over to uh, a war-torn country where they had the mission to rebuild the country's fisheries industry through advising local people on how to uh, develop that. Uh, So that was why uh, we lived there. During that time, we explored a lot of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, actually, mostly Southern Africa, South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, uh, Kenya. So it was a real uh, privilege to spend time there. I was very young, but I do remember quite a bit. It, I think it made a, a big impression on me. And we've traveled back twice since then. Now, we moved back to the United States and I entered into the public school system in Maryland, uh, starting at Annapolis Elementary and then moving on to a Wiley H. Bates Middle School 
where I attended for two years uh, before moving to Norway in 2007 and going directly into the International Baccalaureate Middle Years Program, which was designed for um, multinational uh, expat families to uh, basically place their kids uh, while they were acclimating to a new uh, country and culture. So during that time, I, I spent 2000 and uh, seven until 2009 or 10 there, I met a lot of international kids from all over the world, India, UK, Colombia, Bangladesh, China, Japan, much of Europe. It was a, a truly international place. The, I, I don't know if the quality of the education was uh, the best in retrospect, because uh, there was a lot of turnover in the staff at that school, because a lot of them were expats and didn't stick around for very long, found other countries to, uh, to work in. But I met good friends there and continued into the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program, which is a two-year program, also an internationally accredited system based on a Swiss education model. And that uh, basically summarizes my uh, pre-university experience. What is your life like now? Well, it's a long story. Uh, right now, I'm working as a, a freelance uh, consultant. I'm hired in by uh, a company, a Danish company called Koei, to uh, work on specific projects. So I'm basically, my day-to-day -day is uh, researching projects for international customers, reasonably high-profile public sector ones, like uh, the Nordic Council of Ministers, the European Commission, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and national governments to advise them specifically on how to implement policies centered around the green transition, so to speak. So I'm an environmental economist working uh, internationally to advance climate and environmental policy objectives of governments. And is that related to what you would consider your personal mission, or do you have a personal mission that's not related to environment or travel based on your, you know, growing your history growing up in different countries and everything? Well, my personal mission has always been to have an international life and work globally and interact with people from all sorts of different countries and cultures. I think that's pretty fundamental to who I am, especially um, given my background. So it feels like a, a good fit. And uh, I would say that this is on the path uh, to whatever my long-term goal is. I don't know if I can articulate it, but I would like to work in a position where I can make tangible impacts on what I consider to be one of the biggest challenges and crises of our time. I guess you could say that I'm doing this because I feel like it's uh, necessary and I felt like I was in a position to do it based on my background. And I will speak in more detail later about how I ended up uh, in this particular field because it wasn't necessarily an obvious choice. Yeah, I definitely think that you have had, maybe a roller coaster isn't the right word, but you have gone so many different places. And a lot of people I feel like think there's like a fork in the road of, oh, I can go this direction with what my degree was or you know, what my personal experience has been, but really, especially with all the different steps you've had along the way, the opportunities um, and how you can apply yourself and your adaptability are probably so broad that you can always take those steps to end up where you want to be. And along the way, it sounds like you're getting exposure to some really interesting opportunities, especially some of the organizations you named that you're working with. So that sounds like a very, very uh, wide range of things that you're getting to do and see. So I, I'm jealous personally in that sense. It's really a cool opportunity that you're, what you're working on right now and what you've been able to do growing up with your family, having such a unique background as well. Yeah, I feel really lucky. Um, but I, I, I definitely think it's been, it's been hard uh, from the beginning because I never really knew what I wanted to do and I still uh, have a hard time defining it. You know, after high school, after graduating the International Baccalaureate, that exposes you to all sorts of different directions and you're not really encouraged to specialize. But in the Norwegian system, if you want to make the transition from the International Baccalaureate to a national 
education system, especially in Scandinavia, it is very much encouraged that you specialize as early as possible. And it is designed to keep you in a long-term track to get you into a career right out of graduation. So that isn't really compatible with the international side of my education, the exposure to all these different possibilities, and then being forced to choose immediately after graduating what you want to do. So I did what any, uh, <laughs> what any uh, Washington DC type uh, uh, American might do and go into business. So that's what I did right after high school. I went into Norway's top business school. Uh, that, yeah, and that sounds, pretty, that sounds pretty pretentious. But the reason for that is because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And when you do the International Baccalaureate and try to translate your grades into the Norwegian system, it's heavily inflated. I think I ended up with like 45 out of 44 points or something, which isn't possible, but that, that can happen if you do the IB. So it wasn't a problem getting into the school, but uh, the problems arised when uh, I realized that I didn't really like uh, business. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, you say that that's what any DC kid, you know, young person would do and graduating from high school. What am I going to do? I'll do business. And I think that that, uh, as someone who works at a primarily business school, it's not to say that there aren't students there who know that they want to do business and they, that's why they go there. But there's definitely a few who are like, well, if I get this degree, like I'll have a job, right? And so <laughs> that's kind of like the main impetus for pursuing that. And it's also, I think that studying business can be broad range in terms of what it is that you're learning and it's, it is very applicable. So it's not, not necessarily a bad choice, but it is difficult in the Norwegian system. And I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit more about that, Martin, because as I mentioned in your bio, that's not what you ended up majoring in. So the, you know, the differences between the U.S. system, which you experienced up to a point, right, up to about middle school, you didn't quite get the, the high school experience, and then you were in this um, international program, which do tend, I think, to model almost the U.S. model a little bit more, even though this is technically a French-founded thing. So you had to, you were pursuing your, your higher education in that Norwegian track, which was very much more tracked, as you've explained. So if you want to talk a little bit more about that, I think that would be super interesting. Yeah, well, uh, you're right. The, the International Baccalaureate, the IB, uh, is very much a sort of liberal arts uh, style program. Uh, it, it's really encouraged to expose you to as much as possible so that you can choose a path based on the widest possible range of information, um, the widest possible exposure. So uh, you're encouraged to do a mix of uh, science, um, social studies, mathematics, art, uh, and also uh, obligatory volunteering uh, in the program. So you can really get into um, different uh, academic directions, but also expose yourself to the wider society and see what actually motivates you and what some of your passions might be. And making that sort of, uh, if I compare that to the Norwegian education system, it's more, I, I, I can't uh, speak to the, uh, to the high school experience, but I can speak to the university experience. And that is more intended to uh, create sort of a sense of community rather than individuality. And I think that's the biggest, uh, the biggest difference. So when I say a sense of community, the idea is that you're, if you go from the beginning to the end of the uh, Norwegian education system from grade zero to uh, 13, you could stick with the same class the entire way through and grow up for 13 years with the same friends um, and never be separated from them that entire time in principle unless you move city or something, that's totally possible. Um, your classes won't be separated. You're not put into different levels. You're kept together as much as possible so that you spend as much time as possible with your uh, cohort, your class. Um, and that's basically, the, it's very different from the, the IB program. And it's also quite different from uh, middle school uh, and high school in the United States where you, diversify into different uh, courses 
um, based on your preferences and you can pick elective courses and uh, uh, specialize or explore uh, a variety of different things, not necessarily specialize, but uh, explore and find your particular passion. In Norway, it's more uh, that everybody is in it uh, together all the way and you will be exposed to a variety of different courses, but you'll do it together as a class and it's not necessarily your choice. You have to cover the basics. And uh, after that, because you're obligated to explore all of the basic subjects, the idea is that you choose your uh, path based on whichever one you liked the most. But it's not necessarily based on a subject you chose to explore, but rather one that you have to explore. Yeah, it's making me think about some other Norwegians who I've met along the way, who I guess they finished up kind of their their high school, which there's one more year, right, than there is in the U.S., if I remember correctly. Yeah, and then, 13. Yeah, and, and I think it's common to take a gap year, and that's, so this is what this one person did, and I think she was really struggling to figure out what it is she wanted to focus in on. And I think that that's really important because here in the United States, especially because of the cost of higher education, there's so much push for getting rid of that liberal arts requirement, having it be a much shorter span, and allowing people to go in and just select their majors. And I think that that is fine for an option, but I think what we can really learn from that kind of example from these other structures in different countries is that that does not work for everyone. And that people, there are plenty of people who really benefit from that kind of, that liberal arts degree, so to speak, that, that starts off with more exploration because sometimes you just don't know at the age of 18 or 19. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is quite common for uh, high school graduates to take one or two years or even more if you go into the military, which is uh, technically uh, compulsory in Norway, but it's quite easy to, to slip out of that. Uh, if you decide to go straight into university, for example, you won't have to go into the, the military. But I think there's a lot of value in taking some time to explore things and find out what you are interested in or passionate about. Uh, instead of throwing yourself into something because you feel like you have to. Uh, but, it, you know, maybe some people do. You know, I always felt like I was, uh, I couldn't imagine any alternative than either having a full-time study or a job or something. Um, I was always afraid of having free time. But now I realize that that's probably what I should have done from the very beginning and maybe saved myself a lot of struggle trying to find uh, some meaningful path. I definitely yeah. think that's something in the U.S. we don't have enough of, but also the way you're explaining the community aspect. I mean, we'll talk a lot on the show in its entirety about how I'm a proponent of building community and all this stuff, but the way you explain it almost makes it sound like there's too much of an opportunity. Maybe that's the wrong phrasing, but for like groupthink, where you could be influenced so much by what your your cohort of classmates think of certain subjects that that influences you know, your idea that you need to go into business school, like you said, or something along those lines, whereas, you know, you could realize, you know, I really like art, but maybe not everyone else did. And that might be where my passion lies. So taking some time at the end to kind of figure yourself out really sounds like something we should be doing in the US, but also in other countries that have great education systems that are, you know, happiness levels, all these things that we hear about in the US of, you know, Scandinavian countries and such. Mm we still, there still should be an emphasis on figuring out your individuality and so that you can, you can move on that track that's going to be the best option for you. Because I know Kelly kind of uh, put it into the questions here and I'll lead you into that one, but how was it to then switch your majors? Was that difficult? Uh, What was that kind of trajectory like? And are you glad you did it in the end? Yeah. After two years at the uh, Norwegian School of Economics, I was getting frustrated and realized that this wasn't a good fit for me. That was partly to do with the environment itself. And I felt like I had basically been or thrown myself into basically the opposite of this uh, international program that I had been a part of in high school, because suddenly everything became extremely 
very Norwegian centric and I was exposed to a whole new culture that I actually hadn't been a part of. As an international student, you're, you're living in an expat community. And when you make the switch to a Norwegian community or a national community that's been through a totally different system than you, and you're just interacting with it for the first time, it can be very tough to fit into that and find your place especially if a lot of people have studied together throughout those 13 years or even maybe less, but still for a long time and have that in common. So actually I didn't feel like I fit in there, but there was also the academic side of it. The cultural side was a challenge. The academic side was also a challenge because I don't think economics was a very good fit for me. So I decided that I, I went through about a year of making up my mind about whether I wanted to finish the program or not. And when you get into that school, you're actually also admitted to a master program. So it's a five-year program. You don't have to apply to get into the master. It's automatic. So by dropping out, I was giving up an automatic master's degree, a, a full MBA. So it was a tough choice because you hear all this talk that it's a prestigious place and that you know, you'll have a great career in Norwegian or international business, and you look at all the alumni and graduates of uh, that uni university, and you think, wow, I must be crazy to not want to do this, but I, I just don't. And I talked to my counselor and uh, tried to find out what my options were. And it's incredibly unusual, very uncommon for anyone to drop out of that school. So there weren't a lot of uh, recommendations about how to figure out, you know, what can you do? Should should you just take a, a year off and try to apply next time for another university? I said, no, I don't want to do that. I would rather just go directly into something else and keep studying. I don't want to take a gap. I was very fixated on this idea that I couldn't take any time off. And I just had to keep on going. They allow you to uh, attend other universities as a guest student for up to one year. And it's not very commonly used, but it is a possibility in the Norwegian system. Uh, nobody, uh, none of my friends had ever heard of it. Uh, none of my teachers were familiar with it. I had to basically dig around on the internet and try to find out what this was and how to take advantage of it. So I had to set the whole thing up myself and I had no uh, help uh, doing that. And the whole idea was just to get a taste of some other program to see if it was for me. Uh, but there's not really an infrastructure to do that in Norway. So uh, I found out that I liked uh, my new program, which was uh, comparative politics at the University of Bergen. I found that to be much more uh, mind opening and freeing in a way, whereas I felt like the business track was just focusing you more and more to be a certain type of person and think a certain way. And the comparative politics program was kind of the opposite of that encouraging you to really reflect on the world as a whole and the place of the individual in society and the role of society for the individual. And that uh, really inspired me. And I decided that that was the way to go. Uh, it was a, it was pretty tough uh, switching studies because uh, nobody helped you. And there wasn't any best practice on how to do that sort of thing. And especially if you want to kind of keep a continuous study track and not have a, a break, then it's, uh, it's very hard. And I think it would have been useful to have something like a liberal arts year in the beginning to avoid that uh, difficulty. Yeah, I, I remember when you were trying to make that decision or you were in the midst and I remember kind of adding things up and I've always had to go, wait, I graduated, you know, I finished my undergrad this year, but Marton finished this year and two years after I finished my math, I can't remember anymore, <laughs> yeah. always doing that math. But I think it's really interesting what you're talking about, because I was thinking about liking, I was likening it to um, the U.S. experience as well. So it sounds like it in Norway, it's very typical for students to just kind of take, not, maybe not one track, but you have a couple of different options and it's a little bit more clear cut. And that's probably why most people didn't know about this kind of guest program or guest student opportunity. But you still had to, so you really had to work to get it to research and do all of that yourself. And I think about the U.S. student experience, and I think it can be a whole gamut of different things from going to a private college or a private high school and getting a lot of help to going to a public institution and not really getting a lot of help. But because we have such a diversification of different options, too. It's like, no matter where you are, there is onus on that U.S. student to kind of go and find it. 
So uh, it's it's interesting to compare. But uh, moving, I mean, you did finish up your your degree in comparative politics, and then you went straight into your master's, and you went back to economics, but it had more of a focus. So I think uh, the question that we're curious about here is is what were there are there any differences i mean you you did enter the system in denmark uh as a master's student so that's you know hard maybe to compare but i'm sure you have plenty of knowledge of that kind of undergraduate side and then also i i realized about to i was about to skip over it but you did that year in paris france at Sciences po so lots of things to sort of compare and and differentiate but what stood out to you and in, in kind of that progression of your track Yeah, yeah, that there was that year in uh, Paris, France. That was uh, that was fun. Well, I'll try to I'll try to lay it out and try to point out what stood out to me. I should mention that uh, yeah, I did eventually get my bachelor's degree, but it took six years in total, and that includes uh, that year in uh, in France. So twice as long as a normal bachelor's uh, program. So at that point, I was pretty tired of being a bachelor student. Pretty much tried everything. Yeah, after switching from um, the Norwegian School of Economics into the University of Bergen and switching from business to political science and finding that to be uh, more liberating and interesting, I started getting into the idea of international politics. I wanted to understand how Norway compares to other places and why we had this particular system in in our country and why it's seldom replicated in others. I always wanted the chance to go on exchange and experience another country. It's an education system from a higher education perspective. I found out that there was an exchange arrangement between the University of Bergen and more than a hundred other universities, including quite a few in the United States. The way that that works the student in the partner university pays their tuition to study at the University of Bergen, whereas I take their place, having paid no tuition and benefiting from that education. So I thought, wow, that's a pretty good deal. And I kind of looked around a bit and uh, was wondering, okay, well, you know, this is going to add another year to my bachelor's degree, but why not uh, go abroad and get uh, a free education at some cool university? I started digging around and I found out that we had an arrangement with the uh, Institute of Political Science in France. It's a university which is located across many different campuses around the country, but it's headquartered in Paris. It's known as a prestigious place. I didn't know anything about it before before uh, reading about it. And I saw that there were two spots available and you have to apply for them, but only two people applied, myself and my friend. So we got them despite not knowing any French or uh, not really knowing anything about the university. We got our spots to go uh, abroad and uh, we went to France together. And you're basically allowed to choose any subject you like when you're on exchange. We got into a special one-year arrangement where you even get a certificate for completing a certain combination of courses at a certain level and it has to include a language course, uh, French. It's basically a little miniature degree uh, for free via your Norwegian university, which is just a fantastic arrangement, incredible. So we were so lucky to get the chance to go there. It uh, made an enormous impression because uh, it really was an elite place. Uh, Six out of the uh, eight presidents of uh, the French uh, Fifth Republic have come out of that place. And you can tell that that's the sort of crowd that hangs out there uh, when you're in the hallway. Uh, It's uh, really the the cream of the French elite that attend that university. And uh, myself and my friend were were just uh, wandering around, uh, bumping into those types of people. So it was a surreal uh, experience to have people pulling up in limousines outside, uh, you know, chauffeured cars just to go to school. Uh, It was uh, was really wild. But yeah, (laughs) yeah. it's wild. Yeah, it was it was wild. Uh, and not to mention the the social scene when you're hanging out with these types of people, you know, it's, uh, they, uh, they live a different type of life. It is, uh, it is unhinged. Yeah, you can, you could pick any subject you wanted there, as long as it made added up to 30 ECTS, basically European credits per semester. So a full course load for two semesters, pick whatever you want. So, wow, okay, I'll, uh, I'll browse through their courses and pick uh, whatever interests me the most whatever sounds coolest. 
because that's the only chance uh, I ever had to pick from an enormous array of courses and put together my own little program. And the interesting thing was when I looked at my final list of 10 different courses, they all had a similar theme, and that was climate and the environment and international environmental governance. So how do countries cooperate to manage the uh, environmental and climate crisis that we're uh, living through right now? And that was through no... It was, un, it was subconscious. I didn't think about it. I wasn't actively looking for it, but I noticed that there was a theme and I took the courses and I really enjoyed them, especially the sort of existential aspect of it. You know, they really hammered it into my head that this is, you know, a life or death issue and we need to fix this or else the human species won't survive on this planet. We won't have a habitat anymore. And that could happen within a matter of decades. So that scared me. I realized that this is something that I am passionate about. Maybe not in a maybe not from a positive place, but more from a place of fear and dread. And I said, "Well, okay, this is uh, it's existential. You're motivated by this. Uh, it's scary as hell. Um, yeah, you should probably go for this and try to make a difference here. See if uh, see if you can kind of dedicate yourself to this uh, topic because it, I, I, apart from uh, nuclear war or uh, the threat of basically reaching the technological singularity and having some AI wipe out humanity. Those are the biggest risks in my view. And I wanted to go for the biggest crises, even though it's a bit of a bummer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I love that exercise. And I think I want to use it now for, for students or for anyone who's trying to figure out what they want to major in. Just say, okay, if you could just, here's the whole catalog. If you could pick 10 courses to take in the next year, what would you take? And then see if there are any patterns. So I, I really, I like that a lot. And then you went on to go and get your master's in Copenhagen. So that's, that's what you're doing now. So it seems like it's been kind of, it, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's a fulfilling in terms of what you have decided to do and actually going and, and practically applying what you've learned. Yeah, yeah. When, when I look at it that way, um, I see it as a continuous process of experimentation since graduating from high school to try to find a topic that uh, interests and motivates me. And it was never easy. Uh, and it took a lot of uh, experimentation and a lot of luck. Uh, if I hadn't had that chance to go on exchange and pick a random mix of courses, which I had never had the opportunity to do before, I wouldn't have found that pattern, like you mentioned, and I wouldn't even have been exposed to it. I had no idea about environmental politics or even environmental issues. I hadn't even thought about it. And that was after five years of studying politics and business. And that's what actually concerns me because you can go through an entire program and not have the relationship to those issues that I have now. And it makes me realize that I see this in a way that most people don't. And at a certain point, you're going to have to interact with these people in the, uh, the business world. And you, I think you do learn about it when you get into working life and you're exposed to all sorts of different people. But it was kind of shocking to me that I was unaware of it. Uh, I felt like it was a whole new world that opened up to me that I hadn't even considered. And uh, that was quite exciting. And uh, yeah, like I mentioned, scary. It was uh, sort of a political intellectual awakening. It almost, it almost sounds cliche, but that's honestly how I felt about it, that uh, it was uh, an issue that really motivated me to try to do something. Even if it would end up being an exercise in futility, I felt like I had to try to do something about it. And at the same time, drop a lot of my other uh, possible interests, you know, other career paths that might be possible and pursue this. When it was time to look for a master's program, I knew it had to be related to the environment and politics, but it was pretty tricky to find a, a good fit in terms of a university. I wanted to find something that was basically a compromise between France and Norway, and uh, that ended up being uh, Copenhagen in Denmark. It's really intriguing, I think I would say, when we've talked to many people, you know, Kelly and I both being in international education, and then obviously on this podcast, too, of how 
influential in so many different ways about where you're going to go personally, professionally, a international experience could be, or that exposure to another education system. And you'd already been exposed to multiple regions of education as well as types of education, I would say. Um, but switching up from there, hearing about what your path has looked like educationally, I'm curious from all the travel that you have done both for schooling and for just personal reasons, has there been anything that has particularly stuck out to you about cultural experiences or anything that has influenced your outlook on the world or your outlook on, you know, climate change and the global crisis we see going on right now that you've learned from anyone or any experience along the way? Definitely. Well, for example, when I lived in Paris that year, uh, I lived with a, uh, a French family, a mother and uh, daughter. They were basically uh, Marxist environmentalists in their outlook. And I don't know, quite know how I uh, managed to meet them. It was just through Craigslist. That's how I found the apartment. And yeah, that definitely uh, affects your worldview when uh, you know, you're having conversations like that for a year. So for sure, that was a transformative experience and you know, lovely people. So you start to kind of get radicalized when you're exposed to that. And you realize that if you look at it from a class perspective, from an economic perspective, from an environmental perspective, you realize the gravity of the situation and how it affects people on a personal level. That's how I felt about it. I was exposed to people who had a real personal relationship to this sort of thing. If I look at it from a global perspective, I mean, certainly um, having lived in, uh, for example, uh, Southern Africa, and when you realize how fragile uh, some of the communities there are to, for example, tropical storms, how, how fragile their livelihoods are, they depend very much on the land, uh, not, not like us. You feed yourself from your land, from the sea. Whatever you catch that day is what you're going to be eating. The slightest change to that, the slightest disruption, directly cuts off your, your livelihood. And you're not a part of some global supply chain. You're on your own. You're not connected uh, in the same way. You're basically living off the grid. So I'd, I'd been exposed to that, but I never uh, was able to view it through that lens until... Uh, I was educated about it. And I think that that kind of leads really well into the this other question we like to ask people. You've covered really well, I think, the academic benefits or impact that your kind of switching in between different national structures of education has has had on you. And also professionally, I think it's very clear you have an international-minded kind of mission. How about the personal aspect, though? How has any travel or movement in between places and meeting all these different people, so even thinking about being at the IB program and meeting all these other international students or being in Denmark, meeting students from Denmark and beyond, the question is, what is kind of a more personal impact that that's had on you? And this can be, I don't know, it's so far ranging. It could be um, really positive, happy things and, or really kind of more internalized understandings of different things about other people or about yourself? Uh, well, I can speak to a few things that come to mind. For example, you know, I can speak to some of my American friends and we can talk about, you know, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, for example. But now I've met people who don't believe in democracy at all through my travels and international studies. I've met people from, you know, hardcore authoritarians from Turkey and uh, Belarus and Russia, who um, don't believe that uh, a representative democracy can actually exist, and that the people's uh, will can be uh, expressed through the ballot box in a, in a fair, transparent way. They don't believe in that. Um, my friends from China genuinely support the regime in place because it's improved the lives of so many people in that country and lifted so many people out of poverty. And when they put it that way, it's very difficult to argue with them. I've, I'm, I was exposed to, for example, in France, via the family that I lived with and the younger daughter, uh, I met some of her friends who were basically from a different social class uh, than me, even though I had never thought about it that way. Having spent so much time in Norway, you know, you feel like you're on the same level as everybody, but you go to a more hierarchical society like France and you meet people who are genuinely working class and you try to explain to them that you're taking an education in environmental politics. And this guy that I met, his reaction was, well, how the hell are you going to get a job in that? It's not, a, it's not a tangible thing. I mean, you're not a mechanic. You're not doing anything practical. That's not work. And I hadn't never thought of it that way. He had never heard of uh, spending you know, your life pursuing a career in something so uh, 
you know, ephemeral, so uh, intangible, it, it, it didn't make sense to him. And of course, uh, meeting people living on the very edge of society, barely scraping by on whatever they can uh, harvest or fish in uh, different parts of Africa. I mean, seeing real serious poverty and destruction after a war, you don't get that out of, out of your head when you realize how, uh, how fragile uh, some people's lives really are. People living out in the middle of nowhere, people who, who aren't eating uh, or don't have access to clean water or a place to live. People who have not in their wildest dreams could they uh, have some of the privileges that we have. On that level, it's almost impossible to uh, relate apart from the, you know, the very basic thing, sharing a meal together or asking you know, what they've been doing during the day. But apart from that, it's hard to connect. You just have to have uh, respect for uh, the fact that that's uh, a way to live your life and that, that hundreds of millions of people are uh, experiencing that. We're basically totally isolated from it. One thing that goes through my head all the time is traveling and meeting so many different people uh, from ultra elite people to the most forgotten corners of society. It uh, makes you realize that, at least for me, sort of, you, know, you, you can't help but make uh, social comparisons and you realize, well, you know, I have my own personal struggles, but I realize uh, th things could be so much so much harder and so much worse, or they could be so much less tangible as well. If I was, for example, one of these uh, children of uh, some billionaire sending their uh, kid to uh, some elite school, you know, I don't know if I would necessarily uh, have had the other side of that interaction. You know, if I had seen the other end of how humans can live, I don't know if I would have been exposed to that in the same way if I wasn't kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah, that's a really interesting point you make, I think, when you're talking about, you know, having lived in Mozambique and seeing people and, you know, coming out of this political unrest and you know, trying to rebuild their country from the ground up, essentially, and then the total opposite side, you being somewhere in the middle, like, I would say, probably grew up somewhere in the middle, too, and then had exposure later in life than you did to people in Argentina, in my case, living more on the fringes of society uh, and things like that. And it was, it really alters how you can kind of look at the world and how you look at your own situation. But then for you, I think, A, the age that you are exposed to the experiences in Mozambique, that's it's really pivotal. And then to have that come full circle throughout your, you know, young adult life and have that be something you can take with you forever. I think that's a really interesting opportunity and also probably has influenced how you want to be able to, you know, do what you're doing right now and have, have an opportunity to help what would be the global society. It doesn't really matter where you're at in society. We should all be wanting to, you know, help us out of a crisis that was built for us by maybe that higher part of the society, but it affects everyone down and really affects the people who are at the lower, on the lower tiers of that hierarchical society as well. So that exposure has probably been able to influence you I bet a lot I'm not sure if you agree with that but it's kind of an outsider's perspective for me absolutely um yeah and when you put it that way it's 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 totally uh it's totally true you know now I can sort of see how when I get on a plane and go on my vacation every year that is directly causing you know the climate change that's ruining the livelihoods of uh, these people that I've been exposed to and I'm totally a part of it and now because of what I've been exposed to I can see the the line between my actions and the consequences which I think is abstract when you uh, you know hear about it on the news and you see that you know the the, the world is getting warmer and there's more storms and uh, you know there's flooding and you wonder well you know uh, yeah, but actually, it's very, it's, it's a very much an everyday thing. Uh, it's through our everyday actions that these things are happening. Once you've sort of realized that, you can't, uh, you can't, you know, you can't unsee it. So I think kind of to wrap things up and hear a little bit more about your story, uh, we've heard so much today, but in this post-pandemic world we'll hopefully get to sooner rather than later and then also thinking about you know trying to mitigate any influence you could have in harming the environment or things like that what what is on your mind for traveling next or an event you'd like to to participate in or do next and get to explore and learn more through that vacation professional whatever it might be 
Well, um, my, you know, my personal travel choices are always based on whatever sort of fringe interests I have at a certain time. So now I've just been, I've been watching some, I've been watching a lot of documentaries about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I, I, I want to go to the former Soviet republics and just see what that is. And I, I hear that it's like a time capsule and going back to the, the 1980s or the 1990s. And that, for some reason that really excites me. It's, it's like going, not only are you going to another place, but you're going to another time, which uh, sounds just uh, fascinating. So I would love to do that whenever possible again. And it's really kind of ironic and uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a pity because this, this project that I'm working on now you know, had had there not been these uh, Corona restrictions, myself and my colleague, we would have been traveling to uh, th through work, which would have been the first real international work travel I would ever have had in my life. We would have gone to Nigeria, Colombia, Turkey, Moldova, Bangladesh, uh, Indonesia, and uh, Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, I feel like I kind of got uh, screwed by this uh, <laughs> Corona thing because that would have been awesome. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm I'm bummed for you. That would have been really cool. Yeah, but then you look at it and you say, well, you know, yeah, I guess at least um, you get the other side of it and say, well, you know, I have a, at least I'm still working and uh, things could really that's a that's a luxury problem yeah, to have for sure. Martin, I want before we actually wrap it up, I want to kind of delve into kind of the the fun side of what I know your travel pursuits lead you to. Because, you know, we have, we were t saying before this, we've had the opportunity and really luxury of uh, being able to experience uh, several different countries together. And so I oftentimes think of, even when we were in Dublin, you know, uh, there was, of course, the serious side where you're learning about the place and you're understanding its history and you're thinking about its people and you know, fast forward in time from then, I, I still have this recording of us talking about, I'm pretty sure it was education systems, like while we were making food in Spain, you know, and, and Aaron, these, oh my gosh, these dinners, we'd start at like eight or 7.30 and be making them until 10. And then we'd be eating, then we would, we were drinking wine the whole time. So yeah. it was... <laughs> That's Spanish style. That's how they do things. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, Rioja. <laughs> so I have this very, what I've always appreciated about when we've been able to connect is that we can engage in both sides of that, you know, the fun side and then also the, the deeper thinking part of it. So I'm going to ask this question to try to bring that out a little bit, especially because I know how much you love cooking and how much you love going into really nicely done well, and, and saying places where there's just a lot of food and you can even like pick what you, what you want to make that evening. But I know you also appreciate going to restaurants and all sorts of stuff. So what is maybe the most interesting dish you've ever tried somewhere? And you can think of, you know, three if you want to, because I know this is going to be really hard for you. <laughs> yeah, that is a very tough, uh, that's a tough one. I guess, you know, with these types of questions, you just got to say the first things that come to mind. Exactly. <laughs> because apparently those are the ones that interest you. I, I once ate like boiled jellyfish and that was, yeah, it was kind of like eating, it was like jello, but it took 10 times longer to chew and it was salty. I don't know if I would, uh, I don't know if I would have it prepared that way again. Where was that? Can I ask? If that was know. in, that, that was actually in the States. Yeah, that was in, um. That was in Maryland, and I don't land know. Land of think, crabs. Yeah, land of <laughs> crabs, and I think we went to a uh, like an Asian market somewhere, and we found a jellyfish, and uh, we didn't really know what to do with it, so we boiled it and then kind of turned it into pasta, and uh, it was sort of like stringy, but it was a jellyfish. Yeah, that was that was weird. I like that too because I mean the nice thing about kind of this. Uh, one aspect of globalization, as as we say, um, is that we do have things like like an Asian market in the middle of a, Annapolis in Maryland or something like yeah. that. And so you don't have to travel far to actually get, at least in the United States or certain parts of the United States and other other places um, where you have kind of international, more international communities or groups. So that that is kind of that's a benefit 
Well, that's why the, you know, despite everything going on, you got to give it to the U.S. It's a, a multicultural place. We, uh, we have that going for us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, you can, you can get jellyfish. <laughs> you can get jellyfish <laughs> and some other interesting things for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I guess I can incriminate myself a bit because I've had some, I've had some food that probably shouldn't be legal to eat. I don't know if you're, I don't, are you allowed to, you're allowed to eat zebras, right? I don't know, but I've had it. In the U.S. So. Somewhere in general. <laughs> Zebra? Yeah. I was going to say horse. Zebra's close. Horse, horse is like, that's fine, you know. That's very ho- common in other countries, just not in the U.S. When a horse dies, I think it's better that somebody eats it than that it goes to the glue factory. Yeah, so zebra, that was, um, I think it's legal. Uh, I'm, I'm, and, well, you haven't you know. said where or when, so we don't need to, you know, put a pin on it. Just, <laughs> just <in> Yeah, <laughs> and like many different variations of it too, like, you know, fillets and steaks and like pate made from like the liver and stuff. Just, um, yeah, a lot of different zebra stuff. Yeah, I don't, and zebra, I don't think they're endangered. I think they're they're pretty they're pretty abundant, but I have I have eaten one in, I've eaten a couple of endangered animals. You know, I'm not proud of it, but uh, but I you know I couldn't say no. Um, and that was uh, yes, yeah, sturgeon, uh, which is also I think what they use to make uh, they use that's how they make Russian caviar. It's from uh, sturgeon, but you can also eat the fish itself, but you shouldn't because there aren't very many of them left. Um, What's it good so, at least? Yeah, it's delicious. Is it, it is something, very good. is it something that um, your dad or either of your parents found? Yeah, my dad. Yeah, he's, um, you know, they're like, they, they're all about, and that's a fish, you know, they're about conserving fish, fish yeah. biodiversity. So, hey, do you want some endangered fish? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, there you go. That's our jellyfish. So, that's two types of uh, sea creatures and one land mammal. So. Well, Martin, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been, I think, really interesting to be able to talk about your how your mission really has been influenced and positively impacted by the experiences that you have had throughout your life. And I'm just so grateful that we were able to have this conversation today. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope that the stories you heard today have inspired you and helped you to think about what intercultural experiences you'll seek next. Catch another story next Monday. We are Generation Travel Radio. Keep thinking globally.